Hebrews chapter 11. And remember what the book of Hebrews is about. There are, there, this is written in about 66 to 68 AD. It is a couple of years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is in the Judean valleys around Jerusalem, the Jews that are living there. Many of them have become believers, believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And they are thinking about going back into Judaism because the persecution is becoming so hard. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to them that you don't have that option. Because if you go back into Judaism, you are going to die. Not die spiritually, but you're going to die physically. He's speaking of a physical death. You can't lose your salvation. You're going to die physically because you're going to end up in Jerusalem when the onslaught is going to take place and you're going to die in Jerusalem. So you don't have that option. So that's what he's writing about. He's writing to believers, and it's clear that he's writing to believers, and he's writing to Jewish believers because especially in this chapter, he takes verse upon verse where he's building up stories based on Old Testament people, and he mentions them in one or two verses. And had they not been Jews, had they been Gentiles, they would have no context for what he's talking about. So they are, he's clearly speaking to Jews that are there. All right, so we'll pick it up reading from verse 1, and we've already covered through verse, through verse uh, uh, 4, but we'll start reading from verse 1 again. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So what we covered is that you see in verse 1 and 2 that he's giving us example after example of men and women of God who gained approval through faith. Faith was the means by which they gained approval by God, and that remains an avenue by which we gain approval. In in verse 3, it talks about how by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. We understand as believers, through the revelation of God's Word, that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. It gives us understanding of what has taken place in the world. In verse 4, we see that faith brings about righteousness. Faith brought about righteousness in in Abel. And now we'll pick it up in verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. So he mentions this, this man Enoch. He says, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Enoch is one of two people in the Bible that never died physically. So when we read in the scriptures that it's given for all men to to die once and then comes judgment, that all is the general pattern of what happens. That's most of our data points. But there are people, there are two references in the Bible from the Old Testament of people that did not see death, they immediately went from life up to be with God. They are like the people that are going to occur in the rapture when God takes the church up. Those people will never see a physical death. So that was a general thing that was outlined by Paul. But, the, the, but this is one of the two people, Enoch. 
he did not see death. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And this is what he's doing. He's going through the book of Genesis for us. And he's taking out certain individuals from the book of Genesis. And we're going to go to the book of Genesis chapter 5. And we're going to see in verse 21, we're going to read about Enoch. Enoch was actually the, the seventh generation from Adam. And it says, and, and you will see that people lived a long time in this period. And you will say, hey, how can you as a scientist believe this? Because things were different then. And there are, there are good scientific explanations for the lifespans of people. First of all, there are good scientific explanations for lifespans early on in the origin. Not only that, because there was a covering over the earth, there had been no rain. No rain occurred until the days of Noah. That was the first rain, that Noah flood. A mist used to rise up from the earth. That shield could well have kept out the UV radiation, could well have kept out other electromagnetic radiation, much of which, which impinges upon us today. So there are mechanisms by which people could have grown, grown much longer. And people say, well, they were very simple. They couldn't keep track of years back then. You read their writings. They were not very simple. Not very simple at all. In any case, verse 21 of Genesis chapter 5. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So this is all it says about Enoch in the Old Testament other than making reference to him in genealogies. That he walked with God. God liked him so much. He just took him. He never saw death. And then it is revealed to us in the book of Hebrews that he never saw death. In fact, he was elevated to be with God directly from earth, just like Elijah was elevated to be with God directly from earth. Whether he is the two that are going to return in the book of Revelation, we have no idea. But it's mentioned, he's mentioned again in the New Testament. If you turn to the book of Jude, the book of Jude is actually the book right before Revelation. It's the second to last book. It's only got one chapter. Jude only has one chapter. It's a very short book. And you'll see in Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, Jude chapter 1 verse 14. It says, it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, and you can go through the book of Genesis and count the generations. Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. So you know this is the Enoch that they're talking about. He prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch, it turns out, is revealed to us in the book of Jude that he was also a prophet. We're never told that in the Old Testament. We're told that he walked with God. We're told that he walked with God. So let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 11 and try to wrap up this life of of Enoch. It says that that by faith, Hebrews 11 verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. I was just in Israel and I was talking to some students and trying to explain to them what happened to me. When I accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And I said, one of the things that happened to me is I became conscious. All of a sudden, I became a lot more conscious of my sin. And the other thing is, I all of a sudden really wanted to please God. I wanted to please God and make Him happy. With my actions, with my words, I wanted to please God. And this is one of the things that comes upon a believer. When a person accepts Jesus as Lord, there's this desire to please God. It says, Enoch was pleasing to God. What was God's testimony of his son at the baptism? His testimony was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Again, this whole idea that Jesus is pleasing to me. The father spoke of Jesus this way, that he's pleasing to me, that I want to please my father. This is what he's talking about. How do we please God? Then he reveals to us this very thing. He says in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Whoever comes to God must believe two things. He must believe that God is. In other words, he must believe in God. But that in itself is not sufficient. It says even the demons in hell believe that he is God. We must believe that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. God rewards us if we seek him. Try it. Try it. Try seeking him and see if he will not reward you. You think I am preaching some gospel of prosperity. In many ways I am because the Bible says it. How you prosper, I don't know. You may get diagnosed with cancer and end up in the hospital, but in that you will prosper. He will build you. You will be prospered. In the midst of wherever you are, there can be prosperity. When I was your age, I started to pray and to seek God. God got a hold of my heart. And I remember, I still remember to this day, days where where I would pray and I'd be on my knees crying out to God for my career. Here I was in college, an undergraduate, crying out that God would do great things through my life, through my career. You say, well, that's it's kind of selfish. It's doing exactly what it says. That it says it is impo- that we must believe that it, it says that, that uh, um, we must believe that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Because I had a problem. When I was a freshman, I got dropped into an honors chemistry class because somebody thought that I'm a chemistry major, so I'd better be in the honors chemistry class. I did not need the honors chemistry class. I needed to be in with the masses. These kids in honors chemistry had been studying chemistry since kindergarten, it seemed. They knew so much. I didn't know any of this. I just went to a regular public high school and took a regular one-year chemistry class. That's all I knew. These guys knew so much. And I was just getting pummeled in freshman chemistry. And I gave my life to the Lord in October, I'm sorry, in November 7th of that freshman year. And I started praying for my work. I ended up with a B plus at the end of that semester, which to me was a miracle. And, and, uh, uh, but then what happened was, and I'm not saying this is going to happen to you. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but God will prosper you. I ended up number one in my class of all the chemistry students. I took every, every graduate course for organic chemistry that the university taught. I took it as an undergraduate and finished number one in all of those classes as well. God really did something with my career. Go figure, you you know, God answers prayer. You try it. Try it. Try crying out to God. And see if God will not answer. 
Jesus said in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, He says, will I find faith on earth when I return? He says, ask, keep on asking, keep petitioning. The one who is the judge who is righteous over all the earth, keep doing it. And I remember in my, in my young career as an assistant professor, I would pray, Lord, bless my career. And I didn't know what I was doing. God just directed me. And I'd end up in these areas of research before they ever got big. We were doing nanotechnology before the, the word was ever used. And then all of a sudden, people started doing nanotechnology. And they said, what is this? Said, oh, what's what that guy Tour does? I mean, I was there. Said, God just dropped that on my lap. In my lap, I was doing it. We were working in this area of molecular electronics. I've seen in my career, when I was a postdoc, I remember before I went to do my postdoc, I prayed that I'd have two papers in the Journal of the American Chemical Society with my, with my advisor and one in the Journal of Organic Chemistry. And in those days, Journal of the American Chemical Society for a chemist was the best journal you could publish in. It wasn't science. It wasn't nature. Chemists didn't publish there. They published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society if it was the best. When I graduated, when I finished my two years there, I had two papers in the Journal of the American Chemical Society and one journal of organic chemistry just with me and my boss. That's it. Exactly what I had prayed. God answers prayer. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So He gives us the negative. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Whoever comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. If you seek Him, He will reward you. In James Chapter 4, it says you do not receive because you do not ask. The primary reason why we do not receive is because we do not ask. That's the primary reason. That's what it says in the, in the book of James. You do not receive because you do not ask. And the pattern of asking is not once in the scriptures. It is multiple times. You look in Luke chapter 18. It is petitioning again and again. Why, why, why does God make me ask more than once? Because He wants to get a hold of your heart. Because when you come before God, something happens that is much richer and much deeper than just getting the little thing that you're asking God for. Because He's interested in you as a person. He's interested in a relationship. He's not a genie in a bottle that we just come to to ask for things. There is a relationship there. And we study God's Word and He begins to work on our hearts. He begins to work in our life. This is serious business with God. If you take it seriously, you will advance. If you don't, you won't. Alright? It is that clear. You take it seriously and you will advance. This is what it says. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Whoever comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Let's go on and and read about Noah in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So that's it. So all we have here is this one verse about Noah. So let's let's turn back to to Genesis chapter 6 and read about Noah. And read about what was going on in the life of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, we see see the life of Noah. And and actually, uh, Noah spans three chapters. Six, uh, actually actually, uh, four chapters. In six, seven, eight, and nine in in the book of Genesis. So Noah is a a central figure in the book of Genesis. And he gets one verse in in the book of Hebrews. 
But let's let's look at, at at some aspects of his life. We can't read all about him, but but uh, uh, we'll read some aspects of his life. So we're going to pick it up, Genesis chapter six, um, in verse eight. Genesis six eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Well, what was it about Noah that made him different? Look in verse nine. These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So you want to know what the testimony of of Noah was? Look at what God records about Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his time, and he walked with God. This is God proclaiming that. This is not like, you know, some guy saying, oh, he's a good man. You know, I mean... People say this all the time. It, it may or may not be true. It's just, it's just an expression to just get on with a conversation. But, but here it says, he was a righteous man. He was blameless in his time and he walked with God. In fact, in 2 Peter verse, chapter 2 verse 5, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher. That's what he was. He was a preacher of righteousness. It tells us in, 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 in 2 Peter 2 verse 5. These are the, this is the life of Noah. I want you to remember this. That this is the testimony of Noah. That he was a righteous man, he was blameless in his time, and he walked with God. This is his life. What a man. Now, what happens is, is, is God instructs him to build an ark for the salvation in his, for his, of his family. It took him 100 years to build the ark. It's not like, you know, two hours. If, if, you can look at the size of this ark. It was huge. If you come to my office someday, come and look at this painting that I have of, of Noah's ark, and it puts it in scale. It was huge. It took him 100 years for he and his sons to build this. During this time, he was being mocked by people around him. It had never rained on earth. A mist used to rise up from the face. It never rained. And here he's building an ark on top of a mountain because God instructed him to do something. And he started doing it. And he, had, he bore abuse of people used to mock him. Can you imagine a hundred years of mocking? God never told him that, you know, well, yeah, I'll send rains in a hundred years. I mean, he had no idea. When he started this project, he probably had no idea how long it was going to take. And you see that God started working. God started doing things and he... He with his family. He called his family to help him in the building of this ark. Gentlemen, remember, you are going to be the leaders in your home. Stand up and be a leader. Stand up and lead your family in the way of righteousness like Noah did. Lead them in the way of righteousness. Stand up and do that. Don't say, well, you know, my wife's a much better at teaching the Bible than I am. You stand up and you teach your children the word of God. Have a family devotion time and do that. Be a leader. Noah did that. And we will see next week how Abraham did that. But I want to focus something else about Noah. I want you to look in, in, in how, how great a man Noah was. If you look in, in uh, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14. And, and uh, uh, Ezekiel is one of the, the major prophets there. And we're going we're gonna to read about, about uh, um, Ezekiel's testimony of Noah. 
So if you, if you look in Ezekiel chapter 14, so this is thousands of years after Noah has lived. Thousands of years after Noah has lived. Uh, uh, Ezekiel is giving an example of three very righteous men. And he said they are so righteous, if a person could be saved by righteousness from the on, on th- this onslaught that's going to come, if there were three men, here's the three men that could be saved in verse 14 of Ezekiel. Chapter 14, even these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in your midst. By their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. In other words, there is going to be a persecution that's going to hit Jerusalem. Ezekiel was prophesying from Babylon about what was going to take place in Jerusalem during its destruction. This was the first destruction of Jerusalem that he was talking about that was going to take place by Nebuchadnezzar. He references three people, Noah, Daniel, and Job. And in fact, Daniel was his contemporary. That shows you how good Daniel was, that even his contemporary thought he was good. You know, people live long ago, you think, wow, that was a really good guy. But once you live in the same house with them, you know, you, you, you see their weaknesses. But he sp- speaks of Noah, Daniel, and Job. And then in that cha- same chapter, in verse 20, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They would only deliver the, the, only themselves by their own righteousness. This is a proclamation of God. If these three men lived in Jerusalem, when it's going to get attacked, I would save those three men because of their, their righteousness. Noah, Daniel, and Job. So Noah was a great guy. Jesus speaks about Noah in, in Matthew 24 and in Luke chapter 17. And again, in 2 Peter 2.5, which we referenced, it says, Noah was a man of righteousness. I wanted to tell you all that because we're going to see an account of what happened with Noah. Look in in Genesis now. Go back to Genesis. Back to Genesis, and we're going to go to chapter 9 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 9. So this is after the flood, and we're going to start reading from verse 20. After the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, so all of this is done. Noah obeyed, and and they spent a year in that ark. Then Noah planted a vineyard. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk. And he uncovered himself in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had, did, had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He, al- he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant." Okay, so here is this righteous man that God testified he was righteous before the flood, blameless, righteous, obedient. He's testified after, thousands of years afterward, that he is one of three men only that could save themselves by their righteousness. He has testified as a preacher of righteousness thousands of years after that, a thousand years after that in, 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 uh, in Second Peter. And Jesus speaks of him a couple of times in the Gospels. This man plants a vineyard, this man gets drunk, and he takes off his clothes. Now, 
Mind you, he's in his own tent. You know, so he's in his tent. He's not like on, you know, you guys on Baker 13 that run around outside on the Rice campus. I mean, he's in his own tent. His son comes in, his youngest son comes in, and rather than dealing with, and sees him, rather than dealing with the situation, he goes out and he tells his two brothers. From the context, from the context of the curse that happens, it was not a flattering thing that he was telling his brothers. He may well have been jokingly speaking about the, what the father's doing. We don't know. But from the cursing, it seems as if there was a context there that we're not giving full, given full details about. The two other brothers hear about this. They take a garment and they put it between them on their shoulders, around their backs, and they walk backward. They enter the tent and they walk backward and drop it on their naked father. They are blessed. That youngest son, he doesn't even curse the youngest son. He curses the youngest son's son. He says, let him be a servant forever to these other two. The point I want to make is this. You can have a parent who is a great parent, but not perfect. Nobody's going to be a perfect parent until you become a parent. All right? But until then, every parent... No matter what they go through. And sometimes young people would come to me and they say, you know, my parents did this, my parents did... I'm like, I'm looking at them. I think, you know, you are well clothed. You know, you're not beat up or anything. I mean, you you don't look like you you grew up in a sewer. You're going to Rice University. Somebody educated you. You're speaking really decently. They couldn't have been that bad. But you look at them as if they're, they're criminals, as if they're tyrants. Yeah, your father said this to you. Well, he had a bad day. I mean, these things happen. It says in, 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 in uh, Job chapter 6, verse 26, the words of those who are in despair belong with the wind. I mean, sometimes you're in despair, you say things that you shouldn't have said. It belongs to the wind. Just let it go. Let it go. So your father said something to you that hurt you once or twice or three times. I mean, by and large, the Bible may call him a very righteous man. In what he did. You can't take a situation and to think yourself so persecuted, so hurt. I mean, here was a righteous man. He had a bad day. He planted a vineyard. He probably didn't know, you know, what the effects of drinking too much wine. You know, hey, this is pretty good. Maybe I'll have another glass and another glass. It's just like drinking Kool-Aid. He didn't know what was going to happen. It was just in the privacy of his own tent. So he had a rough night. This happens to everybody. I hope my kids don't remember me for the outbursts that I've had. You know, I have these outbursts and they last about 60 seconds, maybe two minutes. And then I spend like months trying to rebuild this damage that I did in two minutes. Has that ever happened to you? Trying to rebuild a relationship through something I blew in two minutes of anger. This happens. Let it go. Let this thing go. He was a righteous man. You will find people at work. Somebody says something to you and, you know, they lost their temper. Well, that's what he really thinks of me. I'll never forget that. Well, forget it. Let it go. The scriptures say in in Hebrews chapter 8 and in Hebrews chapter 10 that he will remember our sins no more. God doesn't remember that night that Noah had that difficulty. God doesn't read that portion of the book of Genesis. 
Because he says he will remember our sins no more. God really separates. He says, look, I mean, Noah's a good guy. Leave him alone. He had a rough night. It was just a bad night. Leave your parents alone in this. Just thank God. If you are here, if you are in this class, trust me, you were not that badly abused. If you are here, you are not that badly abused. You'd be in prison someplace. You'd be in a mental institution. You wouldn't be here. Learn how to cut people slack in this. These other two brothers, they didn't go out, out and start talking to people. Hey, you know what our father did? Hey, check it out. Check it out what the old man's doing. So, you know, what kind of man of God is he? You know, you had a rough night. This happens. Give your parents some slack. And that which you sow in life is that which you will reap. If you want people to be merciful with you and with the mistakes that you're going to make, learn to be merciful with others. Learn to be forgiving. You know, your, your children will say things to you. If you think it's only parents, your children will say things to you that will embarrass you, that will hurt you. And, uh, and you just have to let it go. Just let it go. You know, they had a rough day. The words of those in despair belong to the wind. Parents say things to us that hurt us. Just let the thing go. These are righteous people in God's eyes. These are just regular people. You take the most righteous man of his generation, and he lived a long time. The most righteous man has a rough night. How about us? We're just regular people. We're not like Noah. We know we're close to where Noah was. Imagine all the problems we're going to have. And you will see it when you get older. You will see it. You say, wow, I really blew it. I wish I'd brought up my kids differently. I wish that I had taught them this. I wish that I had done that. And you're going to hope that they cut you a lot of slack because you're going to need a lot of grace as a parent. You give your parents grace and you will receive grace. That which you sow is what you will reap. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray for these young people that you would give them a heart to want to please God. Father, may they want to please you. And Lord, I pray that they would start to pray in faith over and over again, like in Luke chapter 18 it says, over and over again petitioning for their lives, for their careers, for their families, for their spouses to be, for their children to be, that they would start praying now and pour out before you again and again. Father, that they would be pleasing to you because through this they would show faith. They would show faith in God. Father, I pray that you would teach them to be merciful. Merciful with those who have wronged them. Merciful toward their parents. Forgiving toward those who have wronged them toward those who have had an outburst and said something. Father, that you would teach them to forgive, to walk in forgiveness, that their lives, people would forgive them. Father, have mercy on these young people. Let them remember this message and learn to let the words of those in despair just go away with the wind. And Father, I pray for the young people here who do not know you that are wondering that they'd love to have these things in their life, but they are unable because the Holy Spirit does not reside there. Father, I pray that this day, 
they would say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Because I am a sinner. Come into my life. Jesus is Lord. And he has risen from the dead. Father, save their souls today, I pray. For the glory of Jesus. And in his name. Amen.